Welcome to another episode of the Bioinformatics Chat. I'm Jacob Schreiber, and today I have with me Dr. Molly Gasparini. Uh, Dr. Gasparini got her PhD from the University of Washington working with uh, Jason Dury, and now is a scientist working at Octant Bio. Thanks for coming on the show, Molly. Thanks, Jacob. It's great to uh, see you again, and, and you and Roman uh, virtually. Um, yeah, and thanks for inviting me. It's been a while since I've talked in Hansards um, for about a year and a half, and so I can't wait to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember um, the last time we talked about this was at one of the, the ENCODE meeting back when you could still actually go outside. That's right. I know. I know. Uh, in the sunshine and in person. Yeah. So you're a scientist working at Octant Bio now. Can you tell us a little bit about what Octant does and what it's like to work with them? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, Octant is a really fantastic team. Um, the It's a company founded by Shrika Suri out of his uh, UCLA um, tech dev uh, and highly multiplex assay sort of based lab. Um, they've been existing. They've been around for about three years and they moved up to the Bay Area a year and a half ago when I about when I joined and um the company is largely a tech dev company, I guess you could say, um, which is what really drew it, drew me to it. There's nothing to do with gene regulation, nothing to do with non-coding DNA, but it's largely focused on multiple, multiplexing assays of GPCRs, um, uh, which are huge drug targets. And so the idea is if we can apply all this like multiplex tech um, stuff that uses like uh, high throughput sequencing as, as the readout, stuff that uses um, bar, like a lot of DNA barcoding, um, uh, assays like uh, deep mutational scanning, things like that. If we compare that um, to uh, genes and and signal that is important in drug discovery and, and drugs uh, drug functioning, uh, can we um, better understand drugs and design better ones? Um, so yeah, so it's a team of about twenty people. It's a very academic company. Um, thanks to Shree's influence, uh, we I just posted a. Uh, on the blog, like some data that we had generated that we thought might be useful for the community. Uh, last spring, we we pivoted some of the um, tech uh, at the company to uh, uh, a COVID testing and screening assay. So you can use next-gen sequencing to uh, screen um, samples uh, for uh, COVID RNA um, much faster, uh, SARS-CoV-2 RNA. And so... Um, pretty it's a super fun place to work um yeah i highly recommend it to anybody who's interested <laughs> so is the company pursuing its own research agenda or is it contracted from other companies that want certain assays designed its own research agenda and there's um sort of like three different groups um but we all really work interconnectedly um and it's largely uh yeah, and so like uh, we have our own sort of biological uh, goals that we're trying to hit, but towards that we're trying to build uh, new mobile biotech tools um, uh, that are in this sort of like multiplexed uh, realm that um, uh, serve those goals. And then sort of from there, we'll like either hopefully have uh, the company will have its own drug target or um, uh, be able to have partnerships for other places that are interested in the tools we're building. That sounds awesome. I think that it's... Uh... It, it, a lot of your PhD or some of your PhD work seem to be involved in developing assays, you know, these multiplexed assays. And so it's, right. uh, it's I think that's really interesting when people are able to take their PhD work directly and then continue doing something similar in the industrial realm after. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, uh, there's a fair amount of uh, human genetics in the company as well, which is really exciting. Um, there's barely, there's not really any non-coding gene regulation, which is pretty funny. 
Um, which is why I was so excited to come and uh, chat with you guys to see if I can still hack it as a gene regulation person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, let's uh, delve into it then. That The reason we were interested in talking with you is because you've done a lot of really cool work involving enhancers. So um, in, in particular, the, the paper that I thought was super interesting and I've been recommending to everybody who wants to know about oh. non-coding regulation is this Nature Review Genetics paper about basically like, that basically seems to define what an enhancer is. Or tries, <laughs> yeah. Let's start with that simple question, uh, what is an enhancer? What is an enhancer? Yeah, it's so funny. Uh, I remember distinctly... Um, I was new to the Shinduri lab, you know, a, a rotation student or something like whatever, six, seven years ago that was now. And um, we had a journal club and, and another grad student like threw his hands on the table and was like, what is an enhancer? You know, and then and certainly grad school and then being part of the ANCO consortium and um, writing this with Jay and Jacob uh, Tome, not, not you, Jacob, sorry, but the... Um, uh, in writing this, uh, you know, it's like been there's been so much work. There's been so much uh, uh, um, amazing work and progress made in understanding this uh, from this concept that was only really discovered in the early 80s um, or first sort of demonstrated in the early 80s. Uh, um you know, it's 40 years of work and um, it's uh, I think kind of speaks to the complexity of uh, human gene regulation uh, to, um, in terms of like how much is still vague, how much is still hard to pin down exactly what's going on and, and how do we try and move forward and trying to understand non-coding DNA in the context of disease and everything like that when it's still a, a, can be like a vague uh, uh, definition. So that's a non-answer for you. So we can delve into <laughs> what I actually think an answer is. Yeah, so maybe uh, it might be helpful to first uh, take a step back, which is that, you know, the like this paper, um, actually, I think maybe like your thesis starts out, your thesis, which I was perusing while preparing for this. How'd you find my thesis? <laughs> just know. on your Google Scholar. <laughs> oh, really? You know, the easiest way to prepare oh, is just funny. like open up all the papers that the person's published. Oh, related. gosh, I should have done the same so I can quote you back. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the, so the gist is basically that, we, you know, each cell in the human body has the same genome. And there are trillions of cells in the human body that do very distinct things. How is it possible that the same set of genes can give rise to all these different types of cells? And how do they know, particularly given that we don't have, like, t humans don't have way more genes than other organisms. We have a very modest number of genes, is that right? Uh, I think it kind of depends. Yeah, you know, we have 20,000, right? Um, and yes, some organisms that you wouldn't expect have more, some have less. It's a fun thing to Google around. I don't remember any off the top of my head, but um, we certainly don't have the most DNA. We don't have the most genes. And I remember um, of the faculty in the genome sciences department who was, who was sort of around when people were trying to determine how many, you know, in two th around like the late 90s, early thousands, um, how many genes do human have? There was like a betting pole going around for like, do we have this many? Do we have this many? You know, so it's yeah, definitely not like we're the most complicated, the most fancy. So we have the most genes. I remember Steven Salzberg giving a talk at um, ISMB in Chicago a few years ago. Oh. Where his talk, his keynote was basically like, how many genes do we have? That's and, yeah, exactly. Uh, and everyone's like, well, 20,000. He's like, well, yeah, that's awesome. But, Exactly. He was talking about how, like, in the early thousands, the people were, like, betting on the tens of thousands. Right. Uh, like, on that order of that. Now people are betting, like, within a thousand. And then, right. obviously, because it's, you know, Stephen Salzberg, that there t there's tons of drama involved in. Uh, <laughs> and controversy. And, yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. So then the reason that the, the reason I bring it up is because the way that um, 
the way that gene expression is regulated in humans is not necessarily through just you know the number of genes that we have, but through the combinant oil patterns of regulation through elements like enhancers. Exactly. That's that's kind of how I tend to explain it. Okay, so we have about twenty thousand genes, um, and we have way more cell types than that in the human body. Um, but if you try, if you you know do the math or just think about all the combinations that you could get just from turning those any one gene on or off, you have a vast diversity of possibilities. So um, yeah, it's all through the combination of um, if you can turn a gene off or turn a gene on, if uh, all the combinatorial um, outcomes could uh, give you a vast diversity of um, cell types. So then uh, you kind of gave a non-answer before. Uh, I guess the way that I um, the way that I was introduced to it is that in my undergrad, I took some biochem courses until I knew like what a gene was, and maybe the term enhancer was thrown around a little bit, like as like it's a thing. Yes, you need to you need to know for a test. Yeah, and so I was mostly introduced to the term enhancer from the computational side as basically like it's a block in the genome that regulates gene activity. And so I never really thought of what was going on inside that block. Just ah. like it was a very distinct thing. And like people know, in the same way that people know what a promoter is, which also isn't true. People <laughs> totally. know what an enhancer is. So do you want to get into what people talk about when they mean, when they say enhancer? It's funny the way you describe that, because I think that's sort of how uh, the concept of an enhancer was first described in 1981 by Banerjee et al. They found a, a DNA sequence uh, that did not code for a gene in the uh, SV40 simian uh, virus genome, very small genome. And they put this piece of DNA, and as you're saying, it was just like a thing, a chunk of DNA. They didn't really know what the sequence content was. They put it near a gene and far away from a gene on this sort of synthetic um, piece of DNA. Um, so it's not in a human genome. It's just sort of they're trying to express this gene on this other little piece of DNA. And they put it close to the gene, far away from the gene, and they found that... Um, uh, and they swapped the direction of of this piece of DNA, um, of the viral piece of DNA, and they found that um, in all orientations, it could turn, uh, it would just jack up the expression of that gene. And they're like, this is weird. Here's this piece of DNA. It's non-coding. It's not supposed to have, uh, you know, much purpose because it's not a gene. Um, uh, but it clearly is creating this effect of turning the expression of this gene um this gene up. And so from that definition, it was sort of, I think it was sort of like, okay, this is an enhancer. It enhances gene expression. Um, it's a thing that's in the genome, a piece of DNA. Um, I think uh, there's many different definitions in terms of if you can distinguish what a promoter versus enhancer is. I think largely enhancers are supposed to act, um, they can act far away from the coding gene, whereas a promoter is supposed to be uh, really close and immediately upstream. Um, uh, so, but I'm, there's, I think, whole reviews written about what a promoter is, um, et cetera, um, around the same time when we put out our Nature Reviews Genetics paper. I remember there was one about what is a promoter, and it was like, this is excellent compl uh, complementation. Um, so that's sort of, a, I think, why that concept is sort of how it's viewed to some extent. Um, there have been, but after that first one, there have been decades of work in finding individual ones at, in, at different places in the genome that regulate different genes, the human genome and uh, mouse genomes and um, other organisms, um, fly, et cetera. Um, and uh, um, from there, I think the picture kind of emerged as um, that uh, these pieces of DNA largely hold transcription factor binding sites. And that's kind of a jargony term. But what it means is usually it's a short piece of DNA that... Um, 
uh, allows a protein to bind to that piece of DNA. Um, so it's a little bit like a signal saying, come over here, protein, and the protein can come, this enzyme can come and um, bind to the piece of DNA. So it's located somewhere now rather than just floating around in the milieu of the cell. And so vaguely, I think uh, an enhancer is just a bunch of different sequence motifs, uh, a bunch of different of those transcription factor binding sites. They have little codes. So like this transcription factor binding sites binds ATGC, ATGC, this transcription factor binding sites binds GT, 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 this sort of thing. Um, And so uh, uh, I think enhancers can kind of loosely um, be seen at the sequence level from that. The only issue is that it's not so clear of a code. Like it's um, uh, sometimes things bind where you wouldn't expect them to. They don't always bind. Um, It's highly complicated. There's a lot of variation in what those little signals are, those little uh, sequences are. there's other, other things you can kind of like look at and say, okay, so it's got all these transcription factor binding sites in the DNA. There's all these um, epigenetic signals, which is essentially like how the DNA is wound um, uh, at that particular location, what, um, what other proteins are binding around uh, that location, where the DNA is in the cell. Um, uh, and then there's more and more sort of characteristics like that that are being added. Um, so that's sort of like kind of like what you can imagine a enhancer is. But then the big issue is that you see all these descriptions. You see it's got, okay, it's got these transcription factor sequence motifs. It's got these proteins there. The, chrome, the, the DNA is wound in this way. It's located near a gene such that you think it could be like, um, uh, it's located in 3D space near a gene, not necessarily in DNA linear space near a gene. You know, so you think it could look like an enhancer, but then if you delete the sequence or if you turn the enhancer off using some other synthetic methods, the expression of the gene doesn't change at all. And then you're like, wait, but I thought that's what an enhancer was. Like I thought I found one, and that's kind of the new thing that with a lot of um, new um, technologies such as CRISPR screens, um, which we describe in the paper, or other reporter assays or all these other sort of high throughput techniques that. Um, it, that's kind of given, brought us forward to be like, wait, so is this what an enhancer is? Is it the technology that still needs to catch up? Like, are we not looking at it in the right way? Is it in the wrong cell type? Yeah, so you, you're basically saying that like people had these definitions of what an enhancer is, that like, oh, an enhancer is something where these, you know, these transcription factors bind to it. You know, transcription factors, the proteins that are related to transcription. Yep, yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Or... Uh, either the you know transcription factor binds here, or these mm-hmm. other marks like hist- the histone gets mod- the histones near the uh, enhancer get modified in very characteristic mm-hmm. ways. Yeah, and you have this really interesting uh, comparison in the paper where you talk you talk about the the blind man and the elephant. That's right. I th- I forget how I think uh, Jay maybe mentioned that or so, and we were like, should we go for it? And we're like, fine. This is a pretty silly, great metaphor, a classic one I think in biology, and I think it definitely applies here where. You know, like uh, the people who work on reporter assays will say we should do this. The people who work on, you know, understanding transcription factor binding site sequence motifs will say it's this. The you know, like um, yeah. And I think there's a lot of uh, I, th- I think uh, at least what the thesis we have in the review and and that I personally um, have the view that uh, uh, we it's going to be um, a fair amount of layering on, layering on these techniques and actually trying to like read out. And use sort of like classical genetic logic of like, if you can perturb the sequence, if you can get rid of the sequence, do you see the expected effect? And if you put the sequence back, do you see the rescue of that effect? That's kind of like um, how I'm envisioning an enhancer could be defined. Um, 
that again, that's a genetics perspective rather than like what's the true biochemistry of what's going on at the locus, which is still a huge can of worms. Right. The uh, the metaphor being that uh, if you have you know a bunch, if if you ask blind men to describe an elephant, that they would yeah. go around, they'd like touch it, and they'd be able to provide details about what an elephant felt like or sounded like, but they wouldn't be able to describe what an elephant actually was. Yeah, yeah. Someone touches the tail and is like, oh, it's like a piece of fur. And someone touches the ear and they're like, oh, it's like a leathery jacket or something. Yeah. Right. And so you, you can get these similar descriptions for enhancers. Like like you mentioned before, you know, transcription factors bind here, histones get them off. But none of those describe what an enhancer actually is. Right. And so what you were trying to get to is what a definition of what, what is actually going on with the enhancer. Right. And so it's not just, uh, you, you brought up this contradiction where if you define an enhancer as like it has to regulate the expression of a nearby gene, where you find some of these positions that seem to be enhancers based on transcription factor binding and mm -hmm, histone modification, mm -hmm. but don't actually regulate expression. Mm -hmm. So what was the, what was the, what, what do you think an enhancer is personally? Oh gosh, which is definitely all controversial. Um, but yeah, what what Jay and I were putting forth, uh, Jacob, were that if you can, uh, if it looks like an enhancer, if it smells like an enhancer, if it's located where you, where we think one is, um, uh, or where it should be, etc. Um, and then if you delete that sequence, um, like you take it out of like. Uh, the cell type that you really think is um, where this enhancer should be active uh, based on other biological studies or whatever. Um, if you delete that sequence uh, and then the target genes uh, that you would expect um, that's sort of relatively located nearby, if that target gene goes down, then um, like the expression that gene goes down, there's a good chance that the thing you deleted is probably enhancer. And if you put it back in, um, then presumably it is also, um, that's just like for further validation. It's harder to do both pieces of logic in like large screens. Um, the other issue with enhancers being that there's huge amount of non-coding space to search for enhancers. Um, and there's a huge amount of cell types, which in which an enhancer could be active or not. If you delete it in the wrong cell type, you're not going to see anything, but if you delete it in say this other cell type, um, like if it's an eye enhancer, you delete it in an eye cell, you're going to see it active. But if you delete it in a skin cell, you're going to see nothing. Like that's a whole other added complexity. So we were sort of saying if you can sort of profiles, profile it so you have a select number of candidates and then you can delete it, ideally in a screen or just individually, then um, that's a we're, the chances are that you probably have a real enhancer. That's as far, that's as, far as I'll go. And it's a little bit... Um, uh, often that we propose, like, this is what we're going to define what enhancer is, but instead we're sort of like, here's another way to just be, like, uh, get more increasingly, increasingly sure that, like, what you're finding is truly an enhancer. But um, part of the issue is just, you know, you read about individual examples of enhancers, um, gene regulatory elements, and they're so, it's incredibly just complex. Each each individual enhancer that papers are built around, just, just one or two or, like, a couple near each other, um, you come up with exceptions, you come up with different mechanisms for how they could be regulated and working. Um, and so this was our attempt at trying to say like, okay, this is probably another piece of evidence that the tech is, is, uh, um, appropriate for now in 2020 and, and that, um, uh, and that I think will bring you closer to, to truly finding an, something that we could call an enhancer. Well, that makes sense. It seems like your definition of enhancer involves like a causal mechanism that the enhancer has to cause a change in expression. Uh, specifically, it has to cause an increase in expression in the nearby gene. Right. Mm -hmm. And so proving that causal link 
technically can be difficult. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that seems to make sense to me. I think one of the, one of the ways in, I had like a mind blown moment when I was talking with Rick Myers, he used to be the chair of the Stanford genetics department and now right. leads Hudson Alpha. Uh-huh. Um, I was talking with him and he was mentioning that after, you know, after finishing the human genome project, you know, they knew what the identity of every nucleotide was. And so they're like, okay, well, now let's move on to the simpler problem of of assigning a function to every nucleotide in the human genome. Right? And here we are. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it's been much longer and we have not made a huge amount of progress. But it really, like, blew my mind that his view of it was that you should go through every... You know, it, it, instead of viewing like an enhancer and promoters as like boxes that's hit on the genome, mm, that mm -hmm. you should view every nucleotide as either having some sort of effect and quantifying that effect or not having an effect. Yeah. And so yeah. when you talk like about that. how enhancers contain lots of like transcription factor binding sites, it's really mm -hmm. just saying that there are lots of nucleotides that are functional within the like what you view as like an enhancer box. Yeah, I would totally agree with that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've always thought that. That's particularly interesting because what like what you're talking about is how enhancer one of the complexities in defining enhancers is that enhancers seem to be cell type specific, mm -hmm. and so and if you're looking in the wrong cell type, you might not identify that there's you know an enhancer, but really it's just part of the complexity of like okay, this nucleotide enhances expression in you know lung related cell types, but not in skin related cell yeah. types. Mm -hmm. I was mentioning this earlier. But I, I really like one of the, the first paragraph of this paper, you end it by saying like, you know, however, despite the clear importance of human enhancers, uh, blah, 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 there's a tremendous amount we still don't understand, including where they reside, how they work, and what genes they mediate their effect for. Oh, gosh, you know, because it's true. Uh, in a lot of ways, um, after 40 years of work, it's still like such a can of worms. Um, but uh, you know, in you know, forty years ago, nineteen eighty one, uh, when this concept was first described, it wasn't like, um, you know, there was one from a virus. You know, like we knew so little. So now, like, we know so much more. Yeah, it's, it's like, uh, um, part of it, I think, might you know, part of why that first paragraph is so caveated is that, um, uh, is because, uh you know, biology, nothing is certain. And when you try and like define, you know, like 98% of the genome or screen 98% of the genome for uh, these things, you can't be like, okay, we know for sure that we've like characterized each one. But like, um, yeah, it's not to say that there's not been a huge amount of work done, but it is, I think, more to say that like, there's a huge amount of um, promise here and in, in, in further understanding um uh, in some parts, part of our DNA that we, that might actually be like really, really important. Right. Yeah, exactly. That it's like you mentioned that in the last 40 years, we've come so far, but we, and part of coming so far is realizing that the problem is so much bigger yeah. than we thought that it was going to be. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Those perspectives from, uh, from, yeah, genome scientists who were around when the, you know, the, the genome was first mapped and then like, yeah, the, the next generation of can of worms. So, there's a huge table here where you talk about every single way that people have used to identify enhancers. Do you want to talk about each and every one of those ways in depth? <laughs> Just like my general exam, exactly. <laughs> no, but maybe uh, can you? Uh, maybe it'd be helpful. Um, like, what what are some fairly modern approaches that 
you know, this is a massive problem. So how are we collecting data about it right now? Yeah, um, uh, there tend to be uh, three, uh, uh, loosely three categories. How I think about think about it, there's what does the DNA sequence itself look like? So that's sort of looking for transcription factor binding sites. That's sort of looking for patterns in just the DNA sequence itself. There's loosely um, biochemical annotation, which is sort of saying, okay, we it looks like um, the DNA is wound this way. It looks like the DNA is located here. It looks like the DNA is um, has these proteins attached to it, all the other sort of things in terms of like what it looks like it should be an enhancer. That's the second sort of category. And the third one I tend to think of as a rel- uh, uh, the scaling up of this tech is relatively new. I tend to uh, perturbation um, uh, uh, assays. So this is where you either turn an enhancer off or you um, delete it or you try and disrupt its function somehow. Um, and that's sort of the third category. And in this third category is kind of uh, why the re- we were asked to write this review in that um, it's relatively new um, in terms of being able to, to, to perturb enhancers or any piece of DNA at scale, meaning like uh, in one experiment, that will take you maybe, um, if all goes well, like one or two months, um, uh, you can screen thousands of enhancers. You can screen tens of thousands of genes or things like that. And so um, these are uh, the scaling up of perturbation screens um, uh, largely is due to the advent of CRISPR as a perturbation uh, genome uh, disruption, genome engineering tool. Uh, it just makes it incredibly easy to to uh, delete a piece of DNA, change a piece of DNA, if you attach other enzymes to the CRISPR uh, uh, protein, then you get uh, you can maybe mess with the function of um, uh, uh, an enhancer um, and turn an enhancer off, as a loose way to say it. Um, and because you can uh, wield CRISPR so well um, and so easily, and it's so uh, well adapted to high throughput screens or these massively parallel multiplex assays. Um, uh, it's kind of uh, a new advent and that we're like, oh, we could actually maybe not just like delete one enhancer and study that for 10 years or 20 years and like create many papers about this one enhancer. But instead, maybe we could try and tackle like um, maybe someday all of the uh, st- stuff that has been nominated by assay type one and two by sequence understanding and biochemical annotation Um uh, so those are kind of like the three main categories of um, how we, we take a look at enhancers, I think, now. And um, the third one, the CRISPR screens, um, massively parallel reporter assays have um, kind of come to the forefront as ones where uh, we can actually perturb the function of a, a piece of DNA um, at a scale that uh, the size of the human genome requires. Right. That's. I mean, that scale must be massive. You mentioned uh, that the non like the non coding part of the genome is massive compared to the coding part, and so having to check almost all of that um, is ridiculous. <laughs> but luckily, that sequence space has been narrowed down because of all the biochemical annotation, because of all the sequence um, understanding. So, do you, I mean, do you think that it's sufficient to use things like uh, uh, so? Like we were mentioning, how there are these, you know, there there are these classic signs of an enhancer, you know, transcription factor binding, histomarks, various types of things, but some of those end up not being enhancers. So do you think it's sufficient to limit your search space to those positions? Or do you think that there are some enhancers that, or it's kind of like the looking under the street lamp phenomenon? Street lamp, the other metaphor. Yeah. Um, that's a hard one. Um, 
because I'm sure there are counter examples to every one of those pieces of evidence, you know, where it's like, like not every enhancer maybe requires a, you know, um, uh, H3K27 acetylation, you know, like maybe like all these other different types of biochemical annotation or sequence motifs. Um, uh, but I think it's a great starting point to narrow down the search space. Um, and, uh, and part of, part of this is that, you know, to say a sequence, a sequence is not an enhancer is, is even harder than saying a sequence is, I think, because, um, uh, the fact that you have to check every possible cell type in the human body to possibly say, no, this, you know, as Rick Myers sort of defined it, the sequence does not have function, um, because, you know, DNA function changes, as we were saying earlier, uh, across every cell type in the human body, um, uh, that, that I think is almost harder to say. So the sequence is not an enhancer. Um, uh, and, uh, but in terms of like, if it's efficient to, um, first check for, you know, in say you have one skill skin cell type and it, you know, all the biochemical annotations point to it being an enhancer. Um, uh, the sequence annotation also does. Um, I think, uh, um, I think it's a great starting point. And then we, we can kind of see what comes from that. Um, and try and scale that across many different cell types, see what patterns come from it, see if the CRISPR screening tech or whatever MPRA, uh, sorry, um, Messily Parallel Reporter assay screening tech, like if that all, um, you know, you kind of, we should, it's still nascent, so we should kind of do a first pass, I think, with these uh, uh, annotations leading the way, and then from there, be like, okay, like, is this what we'd expect? Um, should we search in non-coding DNA that it doesn't look like um it doesn't have these correct characteristics of uh, different um, biochemical, biochemical annotations. Um, and then C. I, I, so I think the chances are it's a great starting point, but there's mo- most likely exceptions. That makes sense. It, it seems like, a, so you mentioned that the, this primary tool are these like, you know, massively, well, these like FISPO assays, and these rely on, uh, you know, single cell technologies. And so, um, it, it just in order to scale up, you know, if you have an experiment with like a hundred thousand cells, a million cells, uh, that directly connects to the number of positions that you can perturb. Um, but to date, single cell experiments have mostly been somewhat small. Do you have uh, it's small to the point where you're not even able to perturb all the positions that you might like these candidate? You might not even be able to perturb every single candidate position within a single cell type in a single experiment. Do you? think that these types of single cell experiments are going to be able to scale up to the point where you might be able to look at every single candidate region in one experiment? Uh, to a single cell, I think the answer is yes. I think single cell screens eventually will hit the point and they're coming close to, to having the scale and, and cost that I think would be possible. But but not all uh, CRISPR screens or massive reporter assays require single cell experiments, for sure. Um, the first paper I published was, wasn't one... Um, it was a non-coding screen based on the function of one gene. Um, uh, uh, and I think there's like a bunch of different um, uh, functional assays you can use in CRISPR screen that doesn't require single cell RNA-seq as your readout. Um, single cell RNA-seq is just great because uh, the phenotype is literally the expression of all the genes in a cell. And that's literally the, the you know, the definition, at least that has been largely proposed for an enhancer in terms of impacting the expression of a gene. Um, uh, so there are many other different sort of CRISPR screens, but usually they're limited to checking the function of, um, 
maybe a handful, maybe 10, 20, 30 genes. Um, uh, cause you, uh, and that's like optimistically, usually it's less than 10, just because you have to kind of create a specific, uh, functional assay, um, or, or a more, uh, bespoke transcriptional assay for a handful of genes. Um, we're seeing slower and you kind of get that all, um, for every express gene. Um, uh, okay. So towards your original question, um, uh, I, I think single cell RNA-seq um, is definitely hitting the point where it's going, going to be more reasonable to, to get more, to, to be able to, to attack more and more um, uh, regulatory elements um, to actually meet the scale of what is required and has been nominated by biochemical annotations. I know um, like 10X Genomics is uh, coming out with new ways of, for their single cell RNA-seq kits to um, uh, kind of like super jack them up such that instead of getting maybe 8,000 cells, um, single cell transcriptomes out of a kit, you get, um, 10, I don't want to misquote, but like 10 times more, 20 times more, like super load them essentially and, and have that be feasible. Um, uh, I know Jay's lab has been, uh, uh, at the forefront of combinatorial indexing as a way to, to get, to be able to run and get like 3 million cells, um, single cell uh, profiles and really scale up um, uh, single cell attack seek or single cell RNA seek. Um, Jay's lab, Spanish lab, um, Andrew 80's lab, Georg Selig's lab. There's a ton that are sort of working this space to um, create sort of like at home kits where people can use this um, or uh, not at home, but like uh, uh, non uh, biotech produced kits. Um, uh, and so I, I definitely think that stuff is coming around. But um, at the end of the day, um, Single-cell RNA-seq certainly requires a ton of sequencing, Illumina sequencing. No, it, you just can't get around it. Sure, you can make all the reagents and the kits and everything cheap, but you have to still sequence um, the heck out of the, the transcriptome. And I think that might will always be a limiting cost because um, for every cell you add, you add more sequencing, and that's just highly expensive. So it's all very expensive right now. I think the tech is there, but in terms – I think the cost right now is what's really – prohibiting this from being like wide widespread use gotcha so we basically need a whole new you know you know we need, we need a whole new grant infrastructure just for studying enhancers oh god uh i maybe a whole new grant structure for many things but um <laughs> uh yeah um i i do have i do have some optimism that stuff will be cheap enough but um eventually but uh, i think it will take a while unfortunately yeah again coming at this from the computational perspective i see tons of papers that come out uh, in various journals where people are trying to predict enhancers. And so it's always interesting to me that there's so little agreement on what exactly an enhancer is that to try to like predict them seemed like a very ill-posed task from a computational perspective. And after reading works like this, I've become super skeptical of any type of computational method that doesn't come from a collaboration with a wet lab. Interesting. Do you do you think part of that is um, because there's not enough data so far where people are, are pretty confident that they found like a functional enhancer? I think that it's a combination of two things. I think it's definitely that there's not enough high quality data doing things like promoter enhancer interactions. And I think the second thing is that a lot of computational people don't really care about the subtlety that they're looking just to get a paper out. And so they're like, I made a deep learning method that targeted <laughs> this thing. And I download these annotations from the internet. Mm, yeah, you know, they'll, yeah, they'll yeah. like go to Phantom 5 and they'll download 
uh, they'll, they'll download like permissive enhancers and they won't know what a permissive enhancer is. They'll just say that Got it's it. important to identify enhancers, which it is, but then they won't really care about the label set too much. Interesting. Okay. And that's largely what your podcast is sort of trying to address, right? Is trying to like fill in some of that for people who are like, I, like I have a computer science degree. I'm not going to dive into, you know, PhD in gene regulation, but like trying to like explain the depths a little bit more of the complexities, a little bit more of biology. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I would definitely encourage computational people to look very deeply in because there's this, there's so many errors that you can make from the computational perspective, if you don't un really understand what's going on with your data. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yes. So I think with the, the time remaining that we can move on to the simple question of like, what's actually going on at an enhancer? Like we've been able to define an enhancer kind of in terms of like, you know, maybe there are some marks, maybe there's some like, you know, the important sequences there. We know that we've identified an enhancer when it messes with gene expression, but how does it actually influence gene expression? Yeah, uh, my so the, there's a running joke at work at Octant, um, uh, you know, and I came from Jay's lab where uh, Jay has doubled down on like, I'm a technologist, like, like the lab is, you know, sort of driving towards like a biological vision, but largely, um, you know, it's a tech, tech dev place. And before I was in Jay's lab, I was in human genetics labs, which people can also argue aren't biology labs, you know, like... Uh, um, and so at Octant, the joke is like, I'm, uh, everyone's like, ask biology questions. And I'm like, I'm a, I'm a tech dev person. Like, I, you know, like, like, don't ask me to like make big biological claims or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I'll give it, I'll give a crack at it. Um, uh, largely from education I got from University of Washington, genome science PhD program, uh, class, a class by John Stamatianopoulos, you know, things like that, reading papers like that, learning about the history of these things, but I'm definitely not an expert in the literature in terms of like the latest like concept and diagram. Like I, I was worried about some of the diagrams we have in this nature reviews genetics paper. Cause they're, they're relatively simplistic in terms of like what people actually truly think is the mechanism, what's going on in enhancer. But here's sort of how I understand it is that, um, you have a cell and again, that cell has the same DNA sequence in it as every possible, um, uh, or not every, but like uh, uh, largely the same DNA in it as um, uh, every cell in your body. Um, however, in that, what makes that cell unique and what makes it a specific skin cell rather than an eye cell or a lung cell, for example, is that there are, again, these different proteins, enzymes that are expressed. Um, and so how an enhancer plays a role in that is that um, you have DNA sequence uh, that is a, that, um, when other transcription factors, you know, enzymes that are can turn genes on and on, this DNA sequence is present. The DNA sequence is there at the right time. Uh, other like epigenomic or like um, other marks uh, have like created uh, a situation in which it, this DNA is uh, available to is accessible and wound in such a way that like these other enzymes can access it. Um, the it has somehow potentially been moved in space in the 3d 3d space of the nucleus in the cell to be potentially close um to like in actual physical space to its target genes or target gene region um maybe it's just this one enhancer acting by itself maybe it's a small network of en of enhancers um, or gene regulatory elements um uh and essentially uh because this dna sequence has certain transcription factor binding sites and it looks a certain way and it, and it's got these other marks on it that are sort of accumulated over the cells lifespan. Um, 
uh, it can flag, hey, RNA polymerase, hey, like, come over here and in, somehow enrich this little uh, tiny environment for increasing the chance that RNA polymerase is going to come by and transcribe whatever is in that region, most likely uh, most weighted towards transcribing um, the actual uh, um, gene that is supposed to be turned turned up to be enhanced, the infection of, uh, expression of which is supposed to be enhanced. And there's, I think, a huge body of literature, of which I'm no expert in terms of like how exactly this uh, region is um, what's happening biochemically there in terms of how uh, this uh, increases the chance that RNA polymerase will come and start and go, how, you know, the, there are many different like ways, like ways, all the sort of transcriptional machinery, um, all the enzymes that control transcription, many different theories about how those are regulated, et cetera. And, um, uh, but yeah, largely that's my understanding is that it's sort of increasing the chance that RNA polymerase, um, which is just being expressed elsewhere and just sort of like floating around, is going to be brought to this region, stay at this region, and transcribe DNA into RNA at this region. It's, it's general enough that I can get away with it. But um, uh, yeah, maybe that could be your next podcast in terms of like actual biochemistry of what's going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems kind of like by definition, I, I didn't think even really think about this until somewhat recently. But if you're saying that the gene express, if you're saying the gene expression is going up, you're kind of by definition saying that RNA polymerase is transcribing the more, you know, yeah. transcribing the gene more. And yeah. so kind of, it follows by definition that an enhancer somehow has to increase the rate to which RNA polymerase is recruited. Yeah. And, and plus all the stuff that creates the transcriptional. Yeah, exactly. It's not just the one enzyme. It's a whole suite of enzymes that make that happen. I remember the uh, the same ENCODE meeting was, it was the last time we, you know, talked that there was this like secret enhancer meeting where <laughs> like Erez, Erez Lieberman Aiden oh, wanted yeah. to have a like, he, he wanted to just like talk about enhancers with some people. And so through word of mouth, he was like going around talking with people. And I think people were trying to find you and you, were you there? I don't remember talking. No, where there is no, yeah. I think that people were trying to find all the people who were interested in enhancers, and we like oh. met late one night after the poster session. Yeah, it was super poorly planned, and just hearing people there give ideas for how this was working. Like, one of the ideas was basically that like you form the transcription fact is basically form like this big like finger, and what it does <laughs> is like it pokes an RNA polymerase that's stalled at the promoter yeah. of the gene. And so that wouldn't involve some like complicated biological mechanism. It basically just like helped dislodge a polymerase that had been right, stuck. Like physical, yeah, exactly. Yeah, is it something that just like physically moves it? Is it something that changes like the, I don't know, the pH of that region? You know, like there could be a, a large number of reasons. Exactly right. Yeah, and so the the, the whole it it really. You know, it again open every time I learn a little bit of biology, I describe it as like it's opening my eyes. That's wonderful. That's great. Just so like you were saying, that there's so many different chemical steps that involve that are there to build the polymerase machinery at the promoter and then have it go. And each one of those has a like association, dissociation, constant associated with it. And one of those has to be the limiting, uh, the limiting factor. And so it seems like an enhancer is acting on one of those chemical steps in the process of building, you know, of assembling and setting the, the polymerase, uh, setting the polymerase there. So one of the things I found really interesting, again, I have, no evidence of this because I'm not a biologist. But one of the things I thought was really interesting was that you can have an enhancer that is acting on one of the steps. It is increasing the association-dissociation ratio in the process of building the polymerase machinery, but that's not the limiting step. 
And so if that's not the limiting step, something else happens to be the limiting step, that enhancer, even though it's still active, will not show any enhancing exactly. activity. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So there's, yeah, again, there's a number of reasons why something might not act like an enhancer, even though it looks like one. So it's even harder to say, how is this truly not an enhancer? Cell type, like perturbation method, like, yeah, I would totally agree with, with that. Um, but if you do get that signal where you disrupt the enhancer's function somehow and you see the decrease in expression, then that, that's it's much easier to define it that way in my in my the way I logic through it at least. Yeah. Right. Of course. I think my favorite uh, my, my favorite suggestion from that meeting though was that you you create like a transcription canon, which is that the enhancer like basically helps form the loads RNA polymerase machine. Yeah, loads yeah. up and then shoots it at the gene. That's great. That's funny. <laughs> I don't think that that's the the, the right answer. The biochemists but. might have a different opinion. Yeah, exactly. That is one thing I always felt, and you know, feel in genomics and human genetics that you know I really wish I uh, had enough biochemistry friends to really be able to understand. You know, a lot of those things. I always felt that was missing in in some of my um, education in gene regulation, in my understanding. But um, I think that's yeah, coming. I think yeah. W- one of the issues right now is that th- this is so much stuff. That mm-hmm. you know, you can yeah. be a computational person yep. and it can be a full time job just keeping up with the computational literature. Exactly. It's highly complicated and niche. Yeah. And then someone's like, oh, enhancers are hard. You're like, I don't have time for that. Just enhancers <laughs> or whatever I download <laughs> from the internet. I know. I know. That's part of, I think it's part of the, the genius and also the, the, the challenge of academia or what have you or any sort of science field where like there's so much power in being such an expert in your tiny niche but then there's also it's you know everyone is so myopic because there's just so much learning and understanding that um uh it's really hard to kind of be able to even connect with other other place other parts of science yeah yeah um so it's really cool that you're doing this podcast to try and do <laughs> just that yeah <laughs> yeah thanks um i think that we're kind of coming up on the end of this is there anything else you want to say about enhancers before we close <laughs> oh gosh um uh, I'm sure I've said some things that are um, debatable and wrong. Uh, hopefully some things that are right in this. Um, I had a great time chatting about it with you, Jacob. Um, uh, but, you know, people listening, um, uh, thanks for bearing with my open mind and uh, naive understanding of gene regulation. Um, uh, but I'm happy to engage with, with people further as far as my understanding. But, yeah, there's so many experts I'm sure you're sort of um, going through in your podcast. Um, I really appreciate uh, you inviting me to give my naive perspective. <laughs> yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. And um, we'll be sure to provide your contact info so that people can write <laughs> angry emails about how they disagree with you. Uh, you can put my Twitter profile and make sure it's all, it's all public. <laughs> so <laughs> that's too funny. All right. Well, thank you again. Yeah. Thank you for, yeah, for the invitation. Great. I had a ton of fun. Yeah.